Welcome to the August 6th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study exploring the use of a novel Hemophilia A mouse model to examine emicizumab function in vivo, a new approach to fighting the cytokine storm of HLH with a combination of glucocorticoids and ruxolitinib, and a timely letter to blood about red cell-bound antibodies and transfusion requirements in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Our first topic is a study entitled, A Hemophilia A Mouse Model for the In Vivo Assessment of Emicizumab Function, researched by Ferrier, Peyron, Christophe, and colleagues at INSERM 1176 at Université Paris-Sud and Université Paris-Saclay, France. Hemophilia A is a genetic deficiency of coagulation factor 8. Patients with less than 1% activity are at the greatest risk for severe bleeding which often involves repeated bleeding episodes in weight-bearing joints. When bleeds are left untreated, they may progress to hemophilic arthropathy, a debilitating joint disease that greatly affects quality of life. The current clinical paradigm is to maintain factor VIII levels above 1%, which greatly reduces bleeding risk, particularly in joints. However, this requires frequent and lifelong administration of factor VIII. Furthermore, Approximately 25 to 30% of patients on factor VIII replacement therapy develop inhibitory antibodies, which renders them at high risk of bleeding, which then requires alternative agents to prevent and treat bleeding. These limitations prompted the development of improved factor VIII molecules and new bypassing strategies that include emicizumab. Emicizumab is a monoclonal antibody that interacts with both factor IX-A and factor X. This essentially mimics a major function of factor 8A, which is to bring factor 9A in close proximity to factor 10 to promote its activation to factor 10A. Previous clinical trials have demonstrated potent pre-hemostatic effects of emicizumab in hemophilia A patients, both with and without factor 8 inhibitors. Since emicizumab may be administered as infrequently as once every four weeks, its use addresses two important limitations of factor 8 replacement therapy namely, inhibitor formation, as well as reducing the emotional and physical stress associated with multiple weekly injections. While this approach appears promising, there remains difficult questions related to the extent and situations in which emicizumab may replace traditional replacement therapy. One challenge has been that emicizumab recognizes only human and primate factor 9 and 10, and thus, studies that explore emicizumab in experimental models are scarce. To address this gap, this team developed a simple and straightforward mouse model that allowed for direct comparison between emicizumab and factor VIII. Mice that are genetically deficient in factor VIII received emicizumab intravenously 24 hours before performing a tail-clip bleeding model. Five minutes before bleeding, a second infusion with human factor IX and factor X were administered. This regimen generates consistent levels of emicizumab and both factor IX and X. Plasmas from these mice display factor VIII-like activity in a diluted APTT assay and in a thrombin generation assay, similar to human samples containing emicizumab. Emicizumab doses of 1.5 mg per kilogram and higher significantly reduced blood loss in this model, with no difference in efficacy between doses. However, reduction in bleeding was incomplete 
compared to mice treated with human factor VIII concentrate. In this model, they deduce that the factor VIII-like activity of emicizumab mimics factor VIII levels of 9 units per deciliter. They also found that combining emicizumab with a low dose of factor VIII provides additional procoagulant activity, resulting in enhanced hemostasis in these factor VIII-deficient mice. The data supports the prior notion that emicizumab changes the phenotype of severe hemophilia A to resemble a moderate to mild phenotype. Laurent Mosnier, from the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, provided commentary on the article entitled, How Much Clotting is Enough? He describes this novel approach as an important workaround for the species specificity of emicizumab. He predicts that this new model will help investigators achieve a more in-depth understanding of how emicizumab activity is regulated in vivo and its impact on clotting dynamics. The mouse model could also provide an important tool for understanding the effect of emicizumab on the progression and management of hemophilic arthropathy, although additional modifications in the model will be needed. Next, we will review a study titled JAK-STAT Pathway Inhibition Sensitizes CD8 T-Cells to Dexamethasone-Induced Apoptosis in Hyperinflammation by Meyer, Verbist, and colleagues at the University of California, San Francisco, and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Cytokine storm syndromes, or CSS, are characterized by rampant and often fatal systemic hyperinflammation. CSS can occur in a variety of settings, including infections, rheumatologic diseases, malignancies, and inherited genetic defects in immune cell function. Regardless of the etiology, CSS are associated with an uncontrolled immune response, with excessive activation of immune cells that infiltrate tissues and secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines that further drive immune cell activation. The pathophysiology of CSS is perhaps best understood in familial hemophagocytic histiocytosis, or FHLH. This inherited disorder is caused by loss-of-function mutations in genes encoding proteins, such as the pore-forming protein perforin, found in NK cells and T cells, that help destroy or turn off activated immune cells. Treatment for CSS in general focuses on the use of lymphotoxic therapies, including glucocorticoids such as dexamethasone, also referred to as DEX, which activate a pro-apoptotic program. In FHLH, Frontline treatment for CSS typically includes DEX in conjunction with etoposide, but patients can be refractory to this approach, or relapse after initial treatment. Interestingly, in T-cell ALL, cytokines such as IL-2, IL-4, and IL-7 were recently found to induce DEX resistance by promoting an anti-apoptotic gene program. These cytokines signal via the JAK-STAT pathway, and targeting this pathway with the JAK-1-2 inhibitor ruxolitinib restored the sensitivity of T-ALL cells to DEX-induced apoptosis. Importantly, many cytokines that are elevated in HLH also activate the JAK-STAT pathway, and ruxolitinib has shown efficacy in murine HLH models and in patients with refractory FHLH. Building on their observations on T-ALL cells, Meyer, Verbist, and colleagues hypothesize that cytokine-mediated JAK-STAT signaling might similarly contribute to DEX resistance in HLH, and that ruxolitinib treatment would overcome this response. To investigate this idea, the team used a combination of ex vivo assays, a murine model of HLH, and primary patient samples 
to show that high cytokine levels in HLH reduces the apoptotic potential of CD8 T-cells, leading to relative resistance to DEX. CSS-associated interleukins IL-2, IL-4, IL-7, and IL-15 all triggered STAT5 phosphorylation, which correlated with increased transcription of anti-apoptotic proteins such as BCL2. Exposure to ruxolitinib decreased STAT5 signaling, thereby sensitizing CD8 T-cells to DEX-induced apoptosis in vitro. Interestingly, cytokines that induced phosphorylation only of STAT1 or STAT3 but not STAT5, did not result in DEX resistance of T-cells. The team also tested the combination of DEX and ruxolitinib in the mouse HLH model. While a low dose of DEX only induced a modest reduction of symptoms, adding ruxolitinib greatly augmented the response, with significantly reduced tissue immunopathology and other manifestations of HLH. In summary, key findings in this study were that hyperinflammation-associated JAK-STAT pathway signaling decreases the apoptotic potential of immune cells in response to glucocorticoids, and that inhibiting the JAK-STAT pathway sensitizes immune cells to glucocorticoid-induced apoptosis in vitro and dampens hyperinflammation in vivo. Meyer, Verbist, and colleagues propose that a strategy combining dexamethasone and ruxolitinib is poised for clinical translation to improve outcomes for patients with familial HLH and other CSS, particularly since DEX is already a component of frontline treatment. Randy Crone of the University of Alabama, in accompanying commentary titled One-Two Punch of Cytokine Storm Syndrome, notes that this novel approach to treating CSS is timely with the health impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the many affected that suffer from CSS. Although the World Health Organization recommends against the use of glucocorticoids in treating COVID-19, there are a variety of treatment approaches for inflammatory cytokines currently being researched in clinical trials. At present, Crone suggests it remains unclear as to the best possible treatment of COVID-19 CSS, but several options are available, including JAK-STAT inhibitors such as ruxolitinib. In select COVID-19 populations, Perhaps treatment with a combination of DEX and ruxolitinib during hyperinflammatory stages of illness may be an effective combination of therapies to knock out the deadly CSS. Our final topic today will be a study conducted by Bertsuini, Bianco, and colleagues at the Fondazione IRCSS, Cagranda Ospedale Maggiore Policlinico Milan, Italy titled, Red Cell-Bound Antibodies and Transfusion Requirements in Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. After noticing an increased frequency of direct antiglobulin test, or DAT, positivity in their blood center during the first few weeks of the COVID-19 outbreak, the authors decided to study samples from 113 consecutive patients with confirmed COVID-19 that were sent for pre-transfusion testing and or blood typing during a one-week period. The direct antiglobulin test, also known as the direct Coombs test, detects immunoglobulin, or complement bound in vivo to red blood cells, or RBC, and is widely used to diagnose immune-mediated hemolytic anemias. There are many potential causes of a DAT positive for IgG, including autoimmunity, drugs, or intravenous immune globulin, among others, and not all positive DATs are clinically significant. In this report, all of the COVID-19 patients studied were hospitalized and being treated with multiple drugs, 
none had received COVID-19 convalescent plasma treatment. A positive DAT was found in 46% of the patients, substantially higher than the prevalence of DAT reactivity among non-COVID-19 transfusion candidates, which is typically less than 10%. In an accompanying commentary on the study, Jean Hendrickson and Christopher Tormey at Yale University School of Medicine in the United States note that the intrigue behind these results is not just the observation of the high DAT positivity rate, but the novel finding that IgG eluded from the patient RBCs did not react with standard reagent RBCs in the indirect antiglobulin test. Instead, the antibodies reacted exclusively with RBCs from DAT-negative COVID-19 patients. Possible reasons for the unique pattern of eluate reactivity in the DAT-positive COVID-19 patients could include modifications of the red blood cell surface during the course of the disease, complement effects, or drug effects. The group did not find a relationship between DAT positivity and medications administered, although the possibility of a drug effect cannot be fully discounted. The data collected in the study also indicate that the presence of membrane-bound immunoglobulins was related to the severity of anemia. The DAT-positive COVID-19 patients had lower hemoglobin concentrations, greater anisocytosis, and needed more transfusions than DAT-negative COVID-19 patients. However, total bilirubin and lactate dehydrogenase concentrations were not distributed differently between DAT-positive and DAT-negative cases. Unfortunately, an association of the anemia with other indicators of hemolysis could not be assessed as the reticulocyte count and haptoglobin are not routinely monitored in COVID-19 patients. It is therefore possible that the anemia was not caused by extravascular hemolysis and might instead be attributed as a marker of the disease. In summary, anti-RBC antibodies were detectable in almost half of the patients with COVID-19 referred to the blood center for pre-transfusion testing. The serologic features of DAT reactivity in COVID-19 patients were different from those generally observed in autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Nevertheless, this finding was associated with an increased frequency of anemia and greater transfusion requirements. Additionally, the data add more evidence to the importance of immune-mediated mechanisms in the pathogenesis of COVID-19. Given the time-sensitive nature of the COVID-19 pandemic, the data from the samples collected over a one-week period are not exhaustive, and conclusions are limited due to sample size. However, the findings certainly lend insight into our growing understanding of the hematologic manifestations of SARS-CoV-2. These thought-provoking results also raise important questions for investigation by the hematology and transfusion medicine communities in the years to come. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.